Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joining me today, she's an author, podcast host, entrepreneur, TEDx speaker, coach, mentor. It's Lois Wagner. How are you doing today, Lois? Sure, that's quite a mouthful. I'm doing great. Thank you. And how are you, Alex? I'm doing good. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Well, I'm from South Africa. Uh, I've lived here most of my life. There was uh, 11 years that I didn't live here, but the rest of my life, yeah. Grew up very ordinary, very normal lifestyle on the poor side. My father was a carnation farmer, a flower farmer, and uh, the farm burned down and we lost everything and went bankrupt. And so we struggled. So as a child, I didn't have the luxuries. Um, but it was it was a good childhood to be. My dad worked on the railways, so we got a free railway pass every year. So we used to travel on holiday uh, and stay in the railway cottages. I used to be jealous of my friends because they all went in aeroplanes and stayed in hotels. And we stayed in self-catering cottages. But it was a good childhood. When your family was working at the Coronation Flower or the industrial side, is that something that a lot of families had parents working in? Or was there a variety of different industries that parents were working in? Yeah, very, very different. You know, if I look at all my schoolmates, their parents did completely different things. And the flower farming was secondary to my dad's work. So it was a hobby and a part-time uh, exercise he just loved gardening Uh, he was always in the garden after we lost the farm he was always just gardening I used to say can't you build a swimming pool but no he had to plant his his vegetables (laughs) was that something you liked doing with him when at home was gardening and things like that something that you bonded over or no, no. <laughs> I used to love. I used to love eating all the fresh fruits and vegetables. <laughs> you talked about how the comparison with your friends or your schoolmates were different, where they were on planes and you were in cottages. Do you think that helped you learn a lot about society and things that you took granted for and things that you valued a lot more? At the time, not, but I think today, and it also helped me build resilience, the fact that we had to fight for every penny. We had to turn every penny over twice. We had to, you know, things didn't come easy for us. And so my resilience was developed as a child. We didn't have the luxuries. We had meat once a week. Uh, You know, we didn't go and do fancy things. We traveled by bus uh, when we went anywhere. It was by bus or by train. And, And so... I I wasn't even aware of the others and what they were doing other than they were better off than us. (laughs) I think that's definitely a conversation now that people look at with kids. It's like kids growing up in that luxury lifestyle kind of think, oh, this is the only thing I'm so used to. And then you have people that kind of, like you said, are battling and struggling to go every week. I think they learn a lot because they understand you have to work hard and you got to get to where you want to be in life. So I think that's definitely something that we all can learn is the lifestyle that we live is we can change it at any time. It just depends on what, how you do that and how you work hard. And it shows that your family worked hard to have a life that you guys can all learn and love and stuff like that. 
Yeah. Now, my mom and dad both worked very, very hard. And I can still remember my first job. And my mom had worked her whole life. And my first job, I earned the same amount that she earned. <laughs> and it was like, wow, you've just come out of school and you're earning all this money. And she was so proud of me. <laughs> was there anyone that inspired you or was an inspiration growing up? You know, I, my older sister, I think I was slightly jealous of her. She was a great artist. Uh, she was loved by everybody. She could sing. She could play the piano. She was bright. She could cook. She could sew. <laughs> and I think she was my greatest inspiration. I had the best dressed doll in the neighborhood because she <laughs> made all the clothes for my doll. So, I, and you know, everyone else had Barbies and they bought all these fancy clothes and I had homemade clothes. Uh, so I just obviously was in awe of my sister. You talk about the skills that she had. Was there something that you excelled at that kind of was like your own personal identity? Being a rebel. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can relate to that one. <laughs> I think, I think you know, I was born on my sister's eighth birthday. So we were always, you know, I was always, oh, you're just copying your sister. You're just copying your sister. And so I was determined not to copy her. So I was not going to be good like her. So I was a bit of a rebel. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all have a little rebel inside us. And I think that kind of just, we challenge our parents when we do that kind of stuff. What was that dream job that you were wanting? We always get that question asked, what do we want to do as a career path? What was that for you growing up? Or did you not, were you going to take whatever path that you wanted to go on? I wanted to be a journalist. I I loved, I used to dabble in poetry or rhyme more than poetry. <laughs> uh, and I loved writing. And my mom, at one point, one of her jobs, she was a librarian And so I created a a library in my back room and I had everything, the little cards and the little pockets and the the catalogs. And I had whatever I could get my hands on, comics, you name it, everything was in my library. And I ran my little library and I just thought, this is what I want to do. I want to work with books. I want to write. I want to read. So that um, was always a, a dream of mine. And as a little girl, uh, you know, everyone was playing housey, housey and dolly, dolly. And I used to play school teacher uh, and nobody wanted to play with me because nobody wanted to do school after school hours. And so I was a little bit alone when it came to playing because nobody wanted to play school. But I didn't see that as a career or, a, or an objective. It's just something I, I enjoyed playing. But I just loved books and reading and writing. So I wanted to go and study journalism. There was only one university in the country that had that as a program. And uh, I didn't get in. And, well, it's a long story, why not? But um, I didn't go to university and I didn't get that qualification. So I had to just go out and get a job. Was it hard not being able to go to university or going into the career force right away was something that you knew you had to do because maybe it could eventually lead to something that you enjoyed doing over time? 
Well, I made the choice. It was university or the man. <laughs> and I chose the man. And uh, I ended up marrying the man. But my parents wouldn't support me at university if I continued to see this not suitable character. <laughs> so it was a choice I made. And I landed up in a good job. And I did very well. And I ended up in a career in marketing by default, not by design. And I loved it and I did very well in it. And so it was okay. Um, it was okay that, and then I forgot my dream. I forgot that that's what I wanted to do. Was it hard not having that support from your parents if you made that choice to go to university as while you were with that individual? No, because I was in love and I was so happy to be with the man and, didn't matter. So talk about what was next. You were talking about the different career going out and getting that career. What did you learn about yourself while you were in those jobs? Well, I learned that I, I learned that one doesn't need a degree that you can become successful without having the piece of paper behind your name. So I might not have the the academic smarts, but I've got street smarts. And the street smarts carried me through a lot of exciting opportunities. And I created a lot of exciting projects and it got me to travel a little bit. And uh, it was just, it was an amazing marketing career. I loved every minute of it. And I was really, really happy. Uh, in my work. Uh, so I learned that, yeah, I can do anything. <laughs> what type of marketing was it? Was it for a company or was it for a product or something? It, well, I, I became what they call a brand manager. I started off uh, in market research. My first job, I did market research. And then from there, I became a brand manager in pharmaceuticals. Then from there, I moved into chocolate. Uh, I launched what was then the most successful product into the snack market in South Africa. It was a phenomenon. It it was an absolute phenomenon. Uh, People, we just couldn't make enough stock and people were hiding it. The shopkeepers were hiding it and selling it for double the price. (laughs) So it was such a huge success. Uh, And so, yeah, I rode the wave and and then I moved into marketing for um, fast, uh, for fast, what do you call it? Uh, junk food restaurants. <laughs> what do you call it? Um, uh, well, it was called Wimpy Restaurants. Uh, so it was a sit-down restaurant. It was before McDonald's was born. Uh, and I was marketing manager there for a while. And then I went out on my own as a marketing consultant. With each product business you worked with do you feel that the skills helped you in each spot so you took the skills from one spot and you could carry it over and show people like all these different even industries that you worked with they all use the same tools and stuff that you're able to get people aware of what's going on with these products also, you learn new techniques and new ideas, and you get even more creative each time because you say, well, that didn't quite work. How can I make it better? Yep. So you're designing new concepts all the time and doing something. And I was always a little bit off the wall, I suppose. I always did something a little bit that wasn't quite mainstream, uh, and uh, it caused a lot of <laughs> uh, clashes with some of my bosses over the years. 
during this time, did you go through any challenges personally while you were working or were you try- keeping it separate where you, your kind of work was focused on not thinking about those challenges that you were facing? Well, I focused. I loved my career. I was very successful. Uh, it also, I was probably the first female in the marketing world. I used to go to conferences where it was me and a hundred men. Uh, oh, there wow. were no other women around. So I was pretty rowdy in the <laughs> good life. Uh, and I, I spent a lot of time attending functions and cocktail parties and the like. And eventually my marriage broke down. So that was the challenge. And I just focused on my career. Was the marriage breakdown a result from how hard you were working and not pretty much time into it? Or it just kind of was dissolving over time? And this was when you were. There were a lot of reasons, but the fact that I often came home late after a cocktail party and, you know, I didn't, you know, he wasn't involved in so many of the activities that I attended. So that was a large part of it, but there were lots of other reasons. During this time, when you were now able to just focus on your career path, what was the hardest thing you had to learn about yourself and going through those different careers? I don't think there was a hard lesson at that time. I just grew and grew and I loved everything I learned about myself. Um, I think there were times that I regretted not doing a degree. Uh, You know, I was rejected for certain jobs over the years because I didn't have a degree and I used to get so angry and say, but I can do, and then I look at what my the person who got the job achieved or didn't achieve, and I think I could have done so much better than that. So there were moments of regret that I didn't pursue the qualification, uh, and even today, sometimes I think, oh, if I'd had that degree, I'd be somewhere else now. But then I'd be somewhere else now, and you know, I'm happy where I am. <laughs> so. Well, I think like a lot of people have gone through similar things like that because you look at these job descriptions and they want these outrageous requirements, experiences and stuff. And we all maybe have the same degree, but it's like, we can do those things. Like, let us learn, let us show you what we can do and be able to perform at a high level. Even if it's like, give me a trial base. Let me give me 60 days to show you I can do this job. And it's so hard because people are like, I worked hard. I tried hard to get that job and then they don't get it. And then they find out the person didn't even have the requirements to get that job. And it's, I think people can relate to what you were saying about the job degree, having it or not having it, and then not being able to do it when I've been working so hard to get to where I am today. I often tell people that they ask me what my qualifications are, and I say I've got an MBE, and nobody ever queries it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So MBE stands for management by master's by experience. I like that. That, it's probably some acronym they're like master's business entrepreneurship degree something they're thinking about but no I like that (laughs) I mean experience is a huge thing nowadays like if you have that experience you're able to step right in and do the job and I think a lot of companies just don't look at that right now the British ask me if it means member of the British empire (laughs) 
<laughs> Maybe, yeah, just say that. <laughs> no, I'm a master's by experience because I am a master by experience because after I, I became a, a marketing consultant, I then became a management consultant and I went then from there into organizational development consultancy. And so in my career, I have touched almost every industry, either as a consultant or as an employee or as an employer. Uh, I've done everything. I've done almost every kind of job there is to do. So I am a master of experience. You know, I worked as a consultant. I worked in coal mines, in hospitals, in medical aid societies, in a bomb factory. Uh, I've, I've really touched. I worked with the Navy, with the Army. And so I really know a little bit about a lot. Yes, <laughs> so. definitely. During this time, were you writing on the side? Because you talked about you had a passion for journalism. Were you able to write and still have that creative mindset with that? Not really. I didn't do much writing because I was focused on the career. I wrote lots of business reports and that (laughs) kind of stuff. So the writing became very academic. And I think that has impacted on my writing today. It's a little bit not... Not, uh, I don't have that many adjectives. I, I tend to be a little bit academic in my writing rather than, than artistic. Did you ever think about changing career paths or going in a different direction, not working in that business world? Well, it changed all the time. I think I reinvented myself about 17 times. Um, so when when I became an organizational development consultant, that grew me. I mean, I grew so much during that phase, learned so much about human resources and people and connection. And, and then I did something crazy. I went into partnership and started a digital printing business. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so I mean, something completely different. And uh, that was a long story, but that was about two years. And then from there, I went back into marketing in the corporate world. And then I started my own training business and I did training. And uh, then I studied coaching. And so I've been a trainer and a coach since about 2000. Were you able to kind of have that personal side where you're able to not focus on working so much but be able to focus on enjoying things and having fun and things like that I had a great laugh it was so <laughs> much fun I moved from Johannesburg in South Africa to Cape Town at one point uh, I that's where I had the digital printing business and that's I was in my 40s and that's where I discovered hiking and scuba diving and I was every weekend I was either up the mountain I'd be up the mountain I'd look at the sea and I'd say why aren't I in the sea so the next weekend I'd go scuba diving and I'd look at the mountain I'd say why aren't I up the mountain Uh, and so every weekend I was I was out there socializing hiking scuba diving and when I was back in the corporate marketing world people would say to me but you're always on holiday (laughs) because I was very good at doing long weekends and things like that. So it always looked like I was away. So, yeah, so my time in Cape Town was very, very social. And then I left Cape Town when I was 54 and I went to the Middle East and I worked in the Middle East as a trainer and coach. 
And there, I just traveled. <laughs> I traveled at least three times a year to a different country. So my life was full, 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 full socially. Is there a, f- a favorite memory of a, tra- a place that you travel to that reminds you of fun times and enjoying that kind of traveling and stuff that you enjoy? Oh, man, oh, man. I just enjoyed traveling so much. I traveled 90% of the time solo. I also traveled to countries where women usually didn't go. So I went to Pakistan and Iran and Iraq and Haiti and countries where people don't normally go as a tourist. And I always went, I just went, no plans, no bookings. I just arrive and hire a car and just do my thing. But I think the, the one the one great, great memory I have, I did a 10-day trek in Nepal, in the Himalayas. And I think that spiritually, emotionally was just the highlight of my life, I suppose. Talk about being an author. What made you want to write that kind of novel or the book? And what's been the biggest message that you hope that readers get out of it? Okay. It, this book called Walking Without Skin, it's my memoir or part memoir, and it started as a journal. Um, I started writing it on the night that I was brutally attacked, raped, tied up and left to bleed to death. And it happened in the day way before the Me Too movement, and it happened when the word rape was never discussed in polite circles. And so I was so angry, as anybody would be anyway, But I started writing. I thought the world must know that this happens to everyday people as well. And I started writing it as a journal with every intention of publishing it. Uh, And so it became this journal with all my emotions. It's very raw. It's very in-your-face kind of writing. Uh, But it took me 25 years to publish. When you were writing it, did it kind of bring up those memories or was it something where you talked about being a journal, so it's you're writing it as it was happening or you were going through everything? Uh, I don't think I consciously thought I've always wanted to write. I don't think that I just wanted to write this book and I never really reflected on I should be writing. Um, I, I really, it's only in the last number of years that I've started writing articles and blogs and, and the like. So it's only in my retired years, if you can call it, that I've gone back to my roots. When someone reads it, have they been able to reach out to you and you've been able to talk to them about the similar journeys that they may have gone through or something that you might've said in your memoir that's, that really touched them? Well, you know, it changed over the years, the, the start of the book. Uh, I wrote it and then eventually it became a diary and it became what did I have for breakfast kind of stuff. And it was really boring. And so I lost passion for it and I put it on the back burner And then 14 years after the attack, I went to the prison to the parole hearing of the rapist and I forgave him. And so that gave me a conclusion for the book. And then then I was just enjoying my life too much and traveling. and, And so I just didn't see the need to put it together. And it was only when I turned 64 and I returned to South Africa 
I thought, hey, it's about time I put this book out there. But it therefore changed its format quite dramatically. It's still written in uh, in, uh, journaling format, but in between each chapter, I've got a reflection and a learning. What have I learned from this? And I've designed a model that takes people from being a victim of a trauma through to being a survivor, through to being a, a thriver, through to finding freedom. And so I've designed this model with all the lessons. So the book is the story of my my healing as well as a self-help guide. So it gives you tips and lessons on what, what I learned from the experience. And so that is what I do today. I help people. I take them through that model and find out where they are on their healing journey. And then I guide them through the next phase. So people can get the the message themselves by reading the book or they can contact me and I can coach them through it. I like how you said that that uses those models and that's definitely all about the rise to the challenge as we all go through certain situations, challenges. And I think the rise of the challenge movement is all about learning, growing and kind of understanding what was going on and how can we heal? How can we learn from those situations and become a better individual or grow as an individual? Sometimes it might take a lot longer. Sometimes it happens quickly. It just depends on what's going on for that individual. So when you're talking about you're taking those modules and using those in your coaching business, it kind of shows that we can take those concepts and use it in any part of our lives. Is that something that you're doing where it may not just be from a personal standpoint, but it could be from a professional standpoint also using those concepts? The concepts apply everywhere, regardless of where you are in your life. Everybody faces trauma, everybody. Uh, Sometimes it's hardly noticeable. They're small little things. It could be little things like both your parents worked and you were alone and you felt abandoned. Uh, and you've forgotten about it now in your adult years, but it comes back and there's little triggers that that make you sort of be aware of it. And so, yes, you can go back to that and we can work with that. So it's everything. It's from an accident to a divorce to your house burning down. It could be absolutely anything. Losing your job, being overlooked for a promotion is traumatic. And and so the model applies to any set of circumstances uh, and everybody's journey is totally unique yeah. and you do go up and down. It's not linear. You go fall back and get up back, back up again. So, you know, people need to know that they're not alone, that there's somebody out there regardless of who it is. It could be a formal therapist. It could be a coach. It could be just a family member. But there is somebody out there who can support you. And it's important that you look for that support and you you find somebody who can help you through the process. When I have to ask about this cover because I like the design that you have. Was this something that you came up with the design and the look of it? Or did you have any help or was it inspired by anything? Oh, Alice was inspired by, I don't know how clearly you can see the image, but the image is actually, uh, the image on the lady's back is a painting that my sister did for me many, many years ago. Um, I wanted, I was in the spiritual mode and I wanted to learn how to ground, but I couldn't ground. My mind is too active and I couldn't be present. And I thought if I had an image of me grounding, 
um, and I could focus on that image, it would help me ground. So I asked her to paint me a, a picture, and she painted this particular picture, which is a likeness of me. Um, <laughs> it's not quite me. Um, and she she interpreted it very differently to how I had envisaged it. But I just love it, and it had to be the cover of my book. But it's a nude and so I thought, well, that's maybe not so appropriate. So I thought, I need to change it somewhat. So the nude is still there, but it's not that in your face. And I then got a designer to put it together for me. When you do speaking um, events and stuff, what's the big thing that you focus on at those events? Or what's kind of the points that you're trying to share with the audience? Forgiveness sets you free. And that's through when you were talking about earlier about when you went to that court and you were giving forgiveness to that individual, that's kind of like the motive or the message that you're sharing with the audience. I forgave, you know, in my digital printing business, my business partner betrayed me and we lost the business and I went deep into debt and I forgave him. (laughs) And I never thought I would because at one point I wanted to ride him over with my car. <laughs> oh. um, and uh, and then I forgave the, the prisoner. And the authorities told me that they would let me know in seven days if he got parole or not. And I just, it was spontaneous. I just said, no, I don't need to know. Because people don't understand that forgiveness is not about the other person. But, you know, you're bound to that person. You carry the angst and the pain and the hatred and whatever those emotions are, and you're you're locked into, you're bound to that person. And by forgiving, all you're doing is you're setting yourself free from that memory. So whilst I still have the memory, because you never forget, I'm free of that memory, and I don't get triggered anymore. You know, he attacked me from behind, and if anybody just walked behind me, I would jump. Now today you can come and say boo behind me and what are you doing? (laughs) It doesn't bother me at all because I've broken that bond. I've totally and completely let it go and forgiveness did that for me. And then it's also about forgiving yourself. I had to forgive myself for hating so much. I had to forgive myself for not winning that fight. Um, I had to forgive myself for drinking too much afterwards. (laughs) So Self-forgiveness is as important to set yourself free from, because that's also holding you back when you've got that guilt or that shame. You're not progressing in your life. If someone that's listening to this interview is having that trouble with forgiveness and going through that process, what would you tell them to help them understand that forgiveness process from your journey and experience? Well, the first thing is to know where you are on your journey, because when you're a victim, you're filled with hatred, disgust, depression, fear, whatever it is that you're filled with. How can you forgive when you're so filled with all those negative emotions? So you can't forgive. You need to deal with that first. And then you build your resilience and you become a, a, a survivor. But surviving is still a struggle. You're getting your life back and you're trying to make sense of things. And it's still a struggle. So how can you forgive while you're struggling to make sense of your life? And then when you become a thriver, now you've achieved a level of success and you become empowered. Now you can start thinking about forgiveness. So it's not something if somebody says, I can't forgive, 
they can't forgive because they're not in a place where they can forgive. And so I never encourage people to go and forgive until I understand where they are on their journey. But what I do say to everybody, (laughs) today everybody keeps a gratitude journal. Mm -hmm. It's become a thing, three every day, three things you're grateful for. I say keep a, a forgiveness journal. Start today with a forgiveness journal every day. I forgive myself for pushing the snooze alarm this morning. I forgive myself for burning the toast. I forgive myself for kicking the dog for chewing my slipper. Three things every day, little things that you think, you know, they're just not not important. But it's like a muscle. You're building a muscle and forgiveness becomes easier and easier. It becomes part of who you are. And then forgive three things every day. Forgive somebody else or something else. So forgive the dog for chewing your supper. Forgive your friend for, for forgetting to phone you on your birthday. Forgive your husband for not bringing the milk home from from his day at work. Uh, three little things that again seem insignificant but again you say I forgive you and you just say it I forgive you and it becomes so powerful eventually you know I don't forgive anymore because it just happens Mm -hmm. you know somebody does something that hurts me or a situation upsets me oh okay what have I learned from that and it's gone it's instantaneous because my forgiveness muscle is so strong do you feel that if you didn't go through those situations that your forgiveness muscle would be different today, but you had needed to go through that because it helped you become more powerful, grow as an individual to be able to not let things take over and you're able to still enjoy life and still enjoy the things that you love doing? You know, the experiences give you that resilience, they give you that grit, and it, it's what helps you develop that ability to forgive. So I've, I've learned by doing rather than, you know, I didn't have any help doing it. Nobody said this is what you should do or how I should do it. It's just something I figured out along the way. I thought, okay, I've got to, I've got to get better. I've got to, you know, I, two years after my attack, I landed up with a back problem and I had a back operation and it failed. And I had a second back operation and it failed. And the surgeon said to me that I would never scuba dive or hike again because I could never carry the weight on my back. And so I was bedridden for six months and I just lay in bed feeling very sorry for myself and everybody fetched and carried and shopped and did everything for me until my sister one day said to me, it's all in my head. She said, you're not facing what happened to you when you were raped. You haven't dealt with it. And you're putting it behind you where you can't see it. And you're putting it behind you and you're putting it behind you until eventually your back can't hold all that pain anymore. And your back collapsed, forcing you to go to bed. And that was a bit of a shock that I created. It was real pain. You know, it wasn't in the head. It was real, real pain. I thought, that's nonsense. Why would I create my own pain? But then I did the reflection and I did the inner work, which I should have done two years before. And uh, I I dealt with it. I went for eight chiropractic treatments and I did a five-day hiking trail with a 29-kilogram backpack on my back. Wow. So just that what your sister told you and kind of changed the mindset, got you up going, and now you're able to do the things that you love doing. 
Yeah, and it was because at the time I became an activist. You know, when this happened, as I said, it wasn't something that people spoke about. So I, I went and I, out on the streets and I marched and I lobbied and I petitioned and I gave news uh, interviews and I wanted to change the world because the, the man who raped me was out on bail for rape. And I just thought, I've got to change the law. I've got to change the world. This is not good enough. And so I didn't focus on me. I focused outwards. I focused out there. And it's so important when you first go through trauma, the sooner you deal with those emotions, the sooner you can start healing. What, what was happening, because I was so public, everybody was saying, we're so proud of you. You're so strong. You're so brave. We're so proud of you. You're so strong. You're so brave. And look at me. And so I just never faced the fear and the anger and the hatred. I never looked at it uh, until years later. Uh, and so my advice is always deal with that as soon as you can after the event. Any plans on hiking soon, scuba diving soon, or just taking it day by day? I'm just taking it day by day. Obviously, COVID has uh, come in and changed the world somewhat. Yeah. Um, and I'm also not at the coast where all the lovely hiking and scuba diving is. I'm now inland. Um, so I've also put on a lot of weight. I don't think I can <laughs> put my scuba gear on anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years, personally and professionally? Well, the two go together, I, I think. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've got a program called Brave, and the objective of it is to stop bullying, harassment, and sexual violence. So I want to start in schools and communities and teach people to be brave, and it's an acronym, uh, Boundaries, Respect, Agreement, Values, and Equality. And there's more to it than that, but it's to teach people the qualities that will make them better non-toxic individuals so that they don't go around hurting other people. So that is my dream and professionally. And then personally, I want to take it around the world. So I want to stand up on stages around the world, share my story, share my breath uh, program and travel, just carry on traveling. I want to keep traveling. So that's that's my dream the final question i'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge (laughs) oh there's too many tips (laughs) (laughs) but i think it's about getting clarity who are you and it starts with self-awareness who am i what are my strengths what are my challenges and and have that huge big audacious dream that aspiration and then start breaking it down into bite-sized chunks so my my dream is to speak on 52 stages around the world next year that's my dream Uh, i want to i want to travel and speak every week and so what what am I going to do to do that? So you've got to go and break that down. You've got to have a story. You've got to have a program. You've got to have money. You've got to have yeah. all those things. And so you've got to have many goals and that you've got to achieve in order to achieve your big dream. So unless you've got that clarity um, and create an affirmation, create an affirmation verbally, record it, 
I recorded mine on my phone. It's my alarm in the morning. So every morning I wake up to my affirmation. Uh, it's very powerful. Well, Lois, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me on your show. And I invite all the listeners out there to forgive and to fly free. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to get the full-length episode in video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.